Uh, for the last month or so, uh, many of us have followed the progress of the Matildas in the FIFA Women's World Football Cup. Uh, we've been excited by their energy, by their toughness. We've enjoyed their intensity, their passion. We've been inspired by their skill and teamwork, uh, by Sam Kerr, Mary Fowler, Hayley Razzo and others. Uh, but I want us to think this morning instead about some of the lesser known members of the team, uh, like Lydia Williams. Uh, she was the reserve goalkeeper. This was her fifth World Cup. Uh, and she didn't get to play one minute. Uh, or Courtney Vine, she was at her first World Cup. Uh, she came on at different times as a replacement. They never knew when they would be needed. But they had to be ready. They had to train the same as the starting players. They had to prepare the same. They had to warm up the same. But then they put on their tracksuits and they wait. Always ready to play. Because they might be called on to play at any minute. And that's what Jesus calls his followers to be like. Uh, not sitting on the sideline doing nothing, but ready for him to return. We don't know when, but we need to make sure we're ready. Uh, we pick up again our series in Luke at uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 35. Jesus is in the middle of teaching his disciples. Uh, at the start of chapter 12, he warned them about hypocrisy and he said in verse 2, that everything hidden would one day be revealed. Uh, he's talking about Judgment Day and Jesus' return. Uh, verse 5, he warns his disciples not to fear those who can kill the body, but rather to fear God who has the power to throw people into hell. Uh, once again, on Judgment Day. Uh, and in verse 8, in the context of the disciples being arrested and brought before authorities, Jesus warns them if that if they acknowledge him before men, then he will acknowledge them before God. Once again, thinking about Judgment Day. But while the disciples wait for that day, they need to be ready. And so he begins in verse 35, Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning, like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. That's the picture of our Matilda reserves, isn't it? Dressed, warmed up, boots on, ready for action, just waiting for the moment. Now, he doesn't give much practical detail about what that looks like in our life, how we live as we wait, but we'll get to that. Instead, verse 37, Jesus gives a motivation for us to be ready. It'll be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. The master has just come back from a wedding feast of his own, but to reward his ready servants, he takes off his party clothes, he puts on the apron and he serves them dinner. This was one of the blessings that uh, the Jewish people were looking forward to, according to the, the prophets in the Old Testament. The prophets promised that the day of the Lord, a future day, it, it would be judgment for the nations, but it would be blessing for God's people. So one of those promises is, is in Isaiah 25, and it describes that day. 
On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away all the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. What an amazing promise about a wonderful party, a party that goes on and on because death doesn't cut it short. And that's what Jesus promises for us here in Luke 12, when he returns and eternity begins. And did you notice in Isaiah 25, God himself prepares the feast? That's just what Jesus is promising here, to serve us, his faithful servants. For those of us who are ready, as verse 40 says, for the Son of Man to come. Now, the Son of Man, that was Jesus' favourite title to describe himself. He's the Master uh, who comes back. That title, Son of Man, it refers to another Old Testament prophecy. Daniel chapter 7, that describes someone like a son of man who comes with the clouds before God. And God gives him all authority, glory and power over every nation. And people worship him. And his kingdom is eternal and will never be destroyed. Now that's what it's going to be like when Jesus returns. It'll be far greater than just a master returning to a house. It'll be a powerful king coming in victory over everything and he will be given all authority and everyone will recognise him and submit to him now that's the day that we're to get ready for well hopefully you've understood what Jesus is talking about so far when he talks about a master and a house and servants but he's used pictures and, and metaphors and parables So it's perhaps not surprising that the disciples don't seem to understand. Have a look at verse 41. Peter asks a question. Once again, he's probably not the only one who misunderstands. Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? Because you see, the disciples are not the only ones listening. Chapter 11, it's finished with the Pharisees firing questions at Jesus, trying to trap him. Chapter 12 begins with Jesus surrounded by a crowd of thousands and he warns the disciples about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And so even though Jesus is teaching this, his small group of disciples, there are these other groups who are listening as well. Now all of them are part of God's people, the Jews. All of them are waiting for the day of the Lord, the day when God would come and set everything right promised in the Old Testament when God would separate his friends from his enemies and so the question is who are the servants who need to get ready Peter thinks should should we be listening or is this a message for someone else now at one level it it seems like Jesus doesn't answer his question (laughs) because verse 42 he returns to the story of the servant who's waiting for his master to return But notice what's different in this second version. Firstly, there are two different responses. Verse 42. 
The Lord answered, the Lord answered, notice he's answering the question. The Lord answered, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It'll be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master's taking a long time in coming and he begins to beat the men servants and maid servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of it, he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. Two choices. When the master's away, the servant can do the job that he's been given and be rewarded when the master returns with promotion. Or, verse 45, he can please himself instead and be judged and punished when the master discovers what he's been doing. So that's the first thing that's different in this second version of the parable. The the second thing that's different from the first story is is there's more practical detail about what the servant does while he's waiting. He's not just looking out the window, waiting. For a start, he's not simply a servant. He's a, a steward, a household manager. He's someone in charge of other servants. In fact, verse 42, his job is to feed the other servants. But look at what the wicked servant does instead of looking after the other servants. He beats the other servants. And rather than feeding the servants, he eats, drinks and gets drunk himself. So two types of stewards, one who leads and feeds and one who beats and eats. Jesus' teaching is for those who are in charge while they wait for his return. Now I'm pretty sure Jesus is thinking about Ezekiel chapter 34 where God, through Ezekiel, rebukes the shepherds of Israel. Now the shepherds are the leaders of Israel, the kings, the priests, the elders. And here's what he says about the leaders of the people back in Ezekiel's time. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flocks? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with wool and slaughter the choice animals, but do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You've ruled them harshly and brutally. In Ezekiel's time, the leaders, the shepherds, should have been leading and feeding but instead they were beating and eating. And now in Jesus' time, Israel's leaders are doing the same thing. In the previous chapter, Luke chapter 11, Jesus condemns the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. In 11.39, he says, You Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. Verse 42, woe to you, you tithe your garden herbs, but you've neglected love and justice. And verse 46, woe to you experts of the law. You load up people with laws they can't keep and won't lift a finger to help them. Now the common theme as Jesus 
uh, condemns the, the leaders in his time is that they haven't looked after the people they're supposed to be leading. So here in this parable, uh, in describing the two types of servants, I think Jesus is answering Peter's question. He's saying to the disciples, while I'm away, you have a choice. You can lead God's people, but you have to do a job better than the leaders at the moment. You're surrounded by all of these crowds. They are sheep who need guidance. Lead them and feed them. And then just to add emphasis to the warning, uh, to the command, (coughs) he adds this warning, verse 47. That servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready and does does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. Perhaps Peter's question is coming from complacency. He's just feeling comfortable. He thinks he's safe. I'm a disciple. Jesus must be talking to them. But in verse 47, Jesus is saying, you want to know if these parables are for you, you better make sure you listen and obey. You have a greater privilege than the crowds. They haven't received as much as you. You've been taught more. You will be held more accountable than these crowds. There's more at stake if you don't obey. The consequences are greater because you are leading more people. And so your punishments will be worse than someone who doesn't know as much. Verse 48, from everyone who has been given much, much will be expected. Or as that theologian Uncle Ben in the movie Spider-Man says to Peter Parker, with great power comes great responsibility. Now this verse is a scary word to those of us who are in Christian leadership. We can do a lot of good. We can influence a lot of people. But we can also do an incredible amount of damage. Because people follow leaders. James chapter 3 verse 1 warns leaders. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. If you are a teacher, especially of God's people, be careful what you teach and how you live. You will be judged more strictly. But I think this is also a word for those of you, and that's most of you, who are not teachers, who are not leaders of God's people. The reality is if you are a Christian, then you have been given much. You've been given much. Jesus has forgiven you. He's saved you. He's given you his Holy Spirit. He's given you eternal life. And so much is expected of you. You know his will. He expects you to do it. Your friends and family and work colleagues and neighbours who aren't yet Christian are expecting you. They're depending on you. 
Other Christians here at church are depending on you to encourage them. You've been given much. An education, health, work with disposable income, Bibles, Christian resources, Bible colleges, Christian friends, a good church to be part of. Much is expected of you. And so it will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. But Jesus Jesus also warns about the punishment for those who ignore him. In fact, that, that punishment theme is uncomfortably prominent, isn't it? It's pretty obvious in these verses. It comes through more strongly than the reward theme. Uh, In case you think that's strange, Jesus punishing people, uh, this is the one who announced he'd come to preach good news to the poor and set prisoners free. Uh, Jesus goes on in verses 49 to 53 to explain that that's why he's come. He's come to separate and divide and judge between people. Luke's Gospel has said a lot about Jesus loving people, eating and drinking with them, accepting and welcoming them, but his mission is much tougher than only that. Verse 49, he says, I have come to bring fire, the fire of judgment that that separates, that purifies by burning up what's impure. And Jesus says, I want that fire to start. I want to fix things up. I want to cleanse. And for himself, verse 50, there's a baptism he has to go through to get to that. The baptism of his suffering, torture, abandonment, death. That's part of his mission. He wants to see that mission through. To save people, to defeat evil. Verse 51, his his words, his life, his mission... They will divide people. People think that Donald Trump divides people. Jesus is far more polarising than that. Verse 51, Jesus says, Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. Division of judgement, but also division in terms of what people think about Jesus. Some people will choose, some members of the family will choose Jesus, and others will reject him. And he will split families, literally. Verse 52 and 53. He will split friendships and workplaces and cultures and countries. For some of you, choosing Jesus has meant rejection from your families and friends. We see that in Australian society today, I think. An increasing polarisation about Jesus. A couple of generations ago, most people attended a Christian church. The biggest distinction was whether you were Catholic or Protestant. Sermons were printed in newspapers. It was newsworthy when a new minister came to town. Churches were the centre of society and social events. Christians were respected for their morals. Amazing, considering where we are today. 
But for all sorts of reasons, Christianity has been pushed to the edge, hasn't it? Maybe it's always been on the edge. Almost anything in today's society will be tolerated except saying that someone is wrong or sinful. Now that's the Christian message, isn't it, about sin and repentance? That's Jesus' message. And so Jesus and people who follow Jesus are seen not in a positive sense, not even in a neutral sense. They're seen as negative moral examples. Those who follow Jesus are seen as exclusive and bigoted and judgmental. More than ever, Jesus polarises opinion, separates people. But that's why he came, to bring division. And so he calls people to choose wisely. From verse 54, he calls people to recognise the signs and be reconciled to God before it's too late. Verse 54 and 55, he says to the crowds, you know how to look at the clouds and the wind, you know what sort of weather is coming. Why don't you, verse 56, use that same good judgment to interpret the present time? By which he means, hear the message of Jesus and repent. You look at the clouds and take the washing off the line, you should hear my message and repent. He makes a similar point in verse 57 to 59. Imagine you disagree with someone. Rather than end up in the courts and you might lose and end up in prison, make a wise decision. Work things out with the person before it gets to court. Come to an agreement. Don't risk losing the judgment. You won't get out till you've paid the last penny, Jesus says. There's too much at stake not to work things out before judgment. Now, I think he's describing that situation as, it's obvious, isn't it? Of course you would do that. If you would do that, how much more sensible is it for you to make peace with God before the eternal judgment? Get right with him. Now, this theme of Jesus pleading for people to get right with God, it continues into chapter 13. Someone mentions a dreadful injustice, Galileans killed by Pilate while they offered sacrifices. We don't know what happened. Maybe they're suggesting that God is judging them. But Jesus says, verse 2, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. In other words, that tragedy, that's what happens because we all live in a broken world. It's not God's judgment, but God's judgment is coming. So in a sense, that event, that that terrible event, is actually a sign. A sign of God's mercy. A sign that that could be you. A sign for people to recognise and get right with God. A sign for them to repent. The same with another situation in verse 4. Not, 
due to human sinfulness but just a tragic accident. Verse 4, or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. You see, God's mercies are all around us every day. Every day there are signs that life is short and judgment is coming. I occasionally stand here and take a funeral. And a coffin with someone who's died is right there. And I can tell you, at least for the time that they're in this building, people's attention is on the fact that they're going to die one day. I think they forget as soon as they walk out the door, mostly, but God is giving us mercies every day. He's giving us signs that life is short and we need to get right with him. This section finishes with Jesus telling a parable that confirms to us that that God wants us to repent. He's patiently waiting. Verse 6, it's about a man who has a fig tree, but it's not producing fruit. Year after year, he waits for fruit. The tree deserves to be cut down and the soil used for something that will be useful. That would be fair. But the gardener says in verse 8, give me one more year. I'll dig around it. I'll fertilise it. I'll give it every chance to bear fruit. And if it still doesn't bear fruit, then cut it down. And Jesus' point is, that's the time we're in right now. We're in the extra year of the Master's patience. God has been patient. Israel hasn't produced fruit. The world hasn't produced the fruit of repentance. The world has ignored God. They haven't recognised the signs. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness, slowness to come and judge. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. We are in the year of God's patience. He is fertilising the soil, turning it over, giving us every opportunity. But one day soon his patience will run out and Jesus will return and the fire of God's judgement will come and separate those who belong to Jesus from those who don't. Will you be ready? Will you be doing the work that your master wants you doing? Today, tomorrow, next week? Will will you who've been given much, will you be feeding and leading his people? Will you be encouraging people to recognise the signs and repent and produce fruit? Will you... If you haven't yet done that, recognise the signs and repent. Be encouraged by Jesus' words. It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions.